Well, good morning. Good to see everyone. Let's take our Bibles and turn to John chapter 6. Thank you again to our praise team for leading us in worship this morning. And thank you to all who came out yesterday. We had a huge crew yesterday to uh, be at the workday to beautify the inside and outside of the facilities that the Lord has given us. And so we are so grateful to the Lord for that. And uh, look around, check out the courtyard. The doors are open out there. There's some places for you to sit and uh, just a beautiful area. But thank you again for all who were able to come out and help with that uh, yesterday. Well, we finished up chapter five two weeks ago. We had Justin Peters with us last week. We're now launching into John chapter six. Our text for this morning is verses one through 14. And uh, in my estimation, this is one of the most fascinating stories in the Bible. It's a story that most of us became familiar with when we were young children. It is the amazing miracle of Jesus feeding the 5,000. 5,000 men, the text says. Now, some of you uh, may be familiar with the term numerology. It's the study of numbers or the meaning of numbers in the Bible. And there are a lot of numbers that are used in the Bible, of course, but um, let's just take a couple for instance. Let's take, for instance, the number seven. The number seven is used more than 700 times in the Bible. And most of the time, it carries with it the idea of completion or perfection. Of course, the first example of the use of the number seven is, of course, in uh, for the first chapter of Genesis, God creates the heavens and the earth and all that is in them in six literal 24-hour days. And then after his creation was completely perfect, he rests on the seventh day. How about this? In 2 Kings chapter 5 and, and verse 10, Naaman the leper was commanded to bathe in the Jordan River seven times to be completely clean. And then in Joshua chapter 6, verses 3 and 4, we find Joshua was commanded to march around Jericho for seven days, and on the seventh day, he was to make seven circuits. And of course, there were seven priests that were to blow seven trumpets, all to fulfill or complete the command of God. And we can go on and on with this. Proverbs 6, 16 lists seven things that God hates. There are seven parables in Matthew 13, seven woes in Matthew 23, seven churches in the book of Revelation, seven signs of Jesus' deity here in the gospel account according to John. And so you get the point. There also seems to be significance in other numbers, like the number three, which also seems to signify divine perfection. We think of the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. One God, three persons, co-equal, co-eternal. Another number that seems to have greater significance in the Bible is the number 40, which is the number of trial or probation. For example, the Israelites wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. Moses went up on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. Jonah cried out that Nineveh would be destroyed in 40 days. Jesus was tempted for 40 days. There were 40 days between Jesus' resurrection and ascension. And again, on and on we can go. Now, with all that being said, we don't want to put too much stock, too much emphasis on numerology, but there does seem to be purpose in the use of certain numbers in the Bible, at least some of the time. Well, today as we come to our text, we find the number 5,000. Jesus will feed 5,000 men not counting women and children, which could take this number to as high as twenty to 25,000 people. And he's going to do so with two little fishes and five small loaves of barley bread. From the sack lunch of a little boy, Jesus feeds a multitude And so you may want to know what the number 5,000 represents. Well, it represents a lot of people. (laughs) Jesus feeds the multitude. I, I looked up the population of the city of Anvil. In the year 2020, the population of Anvil, Pennsylvania was 5,001 people. 
So in this miracle that we're about to examine, it's tantamount to feeding the entire population of Anvil. Again, four or five times more if you count women and children. A couple of summers ago, during the pandemic, we met outside for 18 consecutive weeks. And let's just say we averaged 250 people on those Sundays. So what we're going to consider today would be 20 times that many people. And again, that's just the men. And so with the numeric magnitude of this miracle in mind, I want to read it to you and refamiliarize it with you, and then we're going to go through it. So if you have your Bibles open to John chapter 6, follow along as I read, beginning in verse 1. After these things, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, or Tiberias, A large crowd followed him because they saw the signs which he was performing on those who were sick. And then Jesus went up to the mountain, and he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was near, and therefore Jesus, lifting up his eyes and seeing a large crowd coming to him, said to Philip, "'Where are we to buy bread so that we may feed these people?' And this he was saying to test him, for he himself knew exactly what he was intending to do. And Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them, for everyone to receive even just a little. And one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a lad here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are those for so many people? And Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, and so the men sat down in number about 5,000. And Jesus then took the loaves, and having given thanks, he distributed to those who were seated, likewise also of the fish, as much as they wanted. When they were filled, he said to his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments so that nothing will be lost. And so they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves which were left over by those who had eaten. Therefore, when the people saw the sign which that he had performed, they said, this is truly the prophet who has come into the world. Now, it's worth mentioning that the account of this miracle is contained in each of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, And each of the gospel accounts adds a little different perspective to the story. But using the account here, in John chapter 6, we find three descriptive aspects of this miracle that Jesus performs. So as we go through the text this morning, three descriptive aspects. And the first one is the reason for the miracle. And we see this here in verses 1 through 9. Now, as we look at this in verses 1 through 4, we find a description of the crowd. The crowd. Look at verse 1. After these things, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, or Tiberias, and a large crowd followed him because they saw the signs which he was performing on those who were sick. And then Jesus went up to the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was near. So the Apostle John begins this account by saying, after these things, meaning sometime after Jesus had clapped back at the religious leaders who were pounding him for healing the paralytic man on the Sabbath, he travels to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Now there could be a several month gap here between chapters 5 and 6, and we often see this in Scripture, where it seems like it's a continuous flow But oftentimes there is a gap, and I believe that in this case there is a significant gap of time between chapters 5 and 6 because he's speaking of the the Passover and the different feasts, and there's there's a span or a gap between the different feasts. And so some months have passed, perhaps, between chapter 5 and chapter 6. Now let me just say this about the Sea of Galilee. The the Sea of Galilee is more lake-like than sea-like. In other words, the Sea of Galilee is not this huge body of water as one might think. You can actually see from one side to the other. And in Israel, they refer to the Sea of Galilee as Lake Tiberias or Lake Gennesaret. And so Jesus had traveled from the southern region, the bottom of the Sea of Galilee, to the northern region up above the Sea of Galilee. 
And so what we have here is in chapter 5, Jesus is operating south of the Sea of Galilee. And then beginning here in chapter 6, he is now operating in the northern part of the Sea of Galilee area, up near the mountainous region now referred to as the Golan Heights. So a very large crowd had followed him there because they're fascinated by him. They're fascinated by him. Just as John the Baptist had accumulated this massive crowd of people to come and to watch him and to hear him, Jesus was performing miracles. Now we have seven of them that are recorded for us in the Gospel of John, but the Scriptures say that he performed numerous miracles. And so he's performed these miracles. The people are fascinated. And so they began to follow after him. John makes the point that the Passover feast, which, as you know, memorializes God's deliverance of his people out of the hands of the Egyptians, is celebrated each year uh, in Jerusalem, back down below the Sea of Galilee in the southern region. The Passover was just around the corner, John says. And so Jesus and his disciples, they arrive on the top of the mountain and they sit down to relax. The account in Luke says that Jesus went there to be alone. But obviously, (laughs) that didn't last very long. And so now we move from the crowd to the question. From the crowd to the question. Again, verse 5, Therefore Jesus, lifting up his eyes and seeing that a large crowd was coming to him, said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these may eat? This he was saying to test him, meaning he was testing Philip, for he himself knew what he was intending to do. And Philip answered him and said, 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for those who have come to gather around. So we're not told here exactly how long Jesus was able to relax, if if at all. But in verse 5, we find that he lifts up his eyes. Can you imagine... Of course, Jesus knew that the crowd was coming, but for you and I, can you imagine where we finally found a spot? (laughs) We finally found solitude. We finally found a grassy field on the top of a mountain where we can just sit down under a tree and relax, and we lift up our eyes, and 5,000 men and their wives and their kids are coming at us. A massive, huge crowd is coming toward Jesus. And so in verse 5, Jesus does lift his eyes up. He sees this massive crowd coming near him. And so he turns to Philip, who was with him, and he asks him this question. He says, where are we to buy bread for these people so they can eat? And so again, using a little sanctified imagination here, uh, Jesus and his disciples are hungry. They traveled all the way up to the upper side, the northern side of the Sea of Galilee. They're hungry. They're tired. And so the first thing that comes to mind was, what are we going to eat? And so Jesus engages Andrew, and he says, hey, we need to figure out what we're going to do here. And so Andrew takes the bait, and he begins to quantify how much it would cost if the disciples were to go down into the city to buy bread. Of course, Jesus knows exactly how all this is going to unfold, but he's testing Philip here. And so Philip, perhaps a mathematician, begins to quantify how much it might cost to feed this huge crowd. And he says, low estimate, Jesus. I mean, we're looking at 200 denarii here to make sure that everybody gets a little something. Well, obviously he recognizes that even that isn't going to feed the entire crowd. A denarius, as you know, was approximately one day's wage for a normal worker. And so Philip is telling Jesus that it would take about two-thirds to three-fourths of a year's wage to make sure that everyone gets just a little something to eat. And so Philip's trying to be helpful here, but he seems to forget who he's talking to. Philip and the other disciples had witnessed Jesus perform many, many miracles. And instead of trusting that Jesus will handle this, uh, Philip thinks in human terms. And I think we do the same thing. Often we do the same very 
thing. We have a tendency to see the magnitude of a situation and we think it's insurmountable. Instead of just trusting the Lord like we should, if he wants to take care of the situation, he certainly will. And I think of our country. I was thinking a little bit more about all of this this past week. Thinking of our of our country, the trajectory of our of our country, the godless values that it's trying to normalize. We shouldn't be wringing our hands. Why? Because the Lord is in control. He can easily overcome any apparent obstacle. And who among us would have thought that Roe v. Wade would ever be overturned in our country? Who of us would have ever thought 50 years of case law? And just recently, that federal law to an abortion on demand was overturned by the Supreme Court. Do you think the Lord didn't have anything to do with that? Think of the almost insurmountable odds of that happening after 50 consecutive years, but it's no problem for the Lord. So they report all this to Jesus, and it's like Jesus says, okay, I, I have got this. So they're trying to solve the situation. They scour the crowds. They find a young boy who has a, a sack lunch. And this takes us to the means. Look at verses 8 and 9 of our text. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There's a lad here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are those for so many people? So again, they're thinking in human terms. They're thinking, how can we solve the situation? How can we solve the problem? They scour the crowd. They find this little guy who had brought a sack lunch. His mom probably said, hey, you're going to probably need a little something to eat. And so she put in there two little fishes and five little pieces of barley bread. And so the disciples find the boy. They see that he has some food. And so they, they take his sack lunch and they bring it to Jesus. And they say, Jesus, this is all we got to work with. We got two little fishes. We got five barley loaves. And Jesus says, okay, no problem. And so in reality, and the disciples should have known this by now, Jesus doesn't need anything to work with. Remember, he is the creator and sustainer of all things. Colossians 1 tells us that all things were created by him and for him, ex nihilo, out of nothing. Jesus doesn't need a starting point to be able to do what he wants to do. But for the sake of the story, there are two fishes and five barley loaves that are at the heart of what Jesus wants to do. And so Jesus goes to work, and all this leads to the report of the miracle here in verses 10 through 13. Look at verse 10. Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down in number about 5,000. And Jesus then took the loaves, and having given thanks, he distributed to those who were seated, likewise also of the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they were filled, he said to his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments so that nothing will be lost. And so they gathered them up, and they filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves which were left over by those who had eaten. And so here we have in verse 10, we find this command. Jesus tells the disciples to have all the people sit down. Think about the magnitude of this. All the people sitting down in the grassy field. And again, the text says here that there were about 5,000 men that had gathered around Jesus, but when you include the women and the children, now we're getting into huge numbers between 20 and 25,000 people in this field. Now, just for context, in 2021, the population of Lebanon, Pennsylvania was 26,851 people. So I want us to get the sense of the magnitude, the enormous size and scope 
of this miracle by Jesus. The other night, we had Justin Peters over to our house, kind of an impromptu dinner. Kathy and I decided that we'd invite some other friends from our church to join us for dinner. And this all happened very spontaneously in a very short period of time. So we decide to have dinner. Kathy goes out to the freezer in the garage. She gets out some food. She sends me to the grocery store to go out and to pick up some stuff that she needed for the meal. And we fed between 10 and 12 people that night. And it took quite an effort. Jesus was about to have an impromptu dinner for 20 to 25,000 people. And this brings us to the feeding of all of those people. And we see that here in verse 11. Verse 11 says, Jesus then took the loaves, and having given thanks, he distributed to those who were seated, likewise also of the fish, as much as they wanted. So a couple weeks back on a Sunday night, Kathy and I stayed over at the bed and breakfast that the church had gotten us uh, for Pastor Appreciation Month last October. So it it was a gorgeous place, a beautiful place. And that evening, when we began to talk about where we'd like to eat, I told Kathy, I'm going to look up on the internet all the all-you-can-eat buffets in the area. And so I did. I'm scouring through these. We finally found one that looked good, and so we went there for dinner. This amazing miracle that Jesus performs here provides an all-you-can-eat buffet for this massive amount of people. I, I can't even, I'm having a hard time even quantifying how all this went down and how all this happened only by the miraculous hands of Jesus. An all-you-can-eat buffet for this massive amount of people. Now notice here in verse 11 that after he gave thanks to the Father, the people were given as much as they wanted to eat. Can you even imagine being there and seeing this? And by the way, one of the reasons that Christians have developed a pattern of praying before a meal was because that seemed to be the practice of Jesus. We have a couple of different accounts. We see that here in this account of the feeding of the multitude and also prior to the Last Supper. And it's a good thing, by the way. It's not commanded in Scripture for us to pray before our meals, but it's a good thing. It's a a time of pause in the life of a family. And I would encourage you, if you can, and I know how busy life can be, and I know how, how... crazy it can be when you have multiple kids involved in multiple activities and you're going here and there and everywhere but it's good and my mom was very very good about this and we had four kids and we were running every which way but she was very very good about making sure that we had at least one meal a day at the dining room table and we would always always pause before we ate to thank the lord for his provision for our family. And sometimes I think, you know, well, we didn't have a lot, so um, we recognized that we didn't have a lot, and so it kind of made us more grateful that we did have, every time we sat down to eat, we always had something to eat. Mom always had food on the table. Sometimes I think if we have a lot, most people in our affluent country have a lot, And so they sit down, and maybe as a matter of practice or routine, they might thank the Lord, but, eh, I mean, if if this spoiled, they just go get something else. And so sometimes I think we forget that it is God who has provided the bounty for us. So I think it's a good good thing. I think it's a good thing for us to just have a family time where we can actually thank the Lord for what he has done for us. And maybe if there are prayer requests within the family, you can take those at that time. But let me just encourage you to set aside at least one meal a day so that your family can be together. It probably took a while for Jesus and his disciples to physically serve all these people, but I bet that was the best bread and fish that people ever tasted. And all you can eat buffet in a grassy field on the top of a mountain. Amazing. And this brings us then to the fragments 
in verses 12 and 13. When they were filled, he said to his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments so that nothing will be lost. And so they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves which were left over by those who had eaten. And so Jesus starts with five small barley loaves, two little fishes, and after they're done serving the crowd and everyone had their fill and ate everything and anything that they wanted, Jesus tells the disciples to go and to gather up all that was left over so that nothing would be wasted. Now look at this. So the disciples take around these big baskets to pick up all that was left over and they fill up 12 baskets to the brim. And I think it's one giant lesson for us here. Don't ever underestimate Jesus. Don't ever underestimate Jesus. When Peter, when Peter later says in 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 7 that we can cast all our cares upon the Lord because He cares for us, you know what he means? He means we can cast all our cares upon the one who fed twenty to 25,000 people from two little fishes and five small pieces of bread. And if he could do that, and he did, he can easily take care of whatever needs we may have in our life. Many of us have been praying for the health needs of some very special people in our church family and in our biological families. And when we pray, we should be praying with confidence that God can easily heal these people if he so chooses. Do we understand the immense power of Jesus? He created everything out of nothing. It was no sweat whatsoever for Jesus to see this massive group of people coming to him. He was compassionate toward them. He wanted to make sure they had something to eat. And so out of two little fish and five pieces of bread, Jesus feeds a massive amount of people. I want us just to think about the magnitude of what has just happened that all of these people have witnessed. So they start out with this pittance, and then by the time they're done, they've got 12 humongous baskets filled to the brim. Now, how would you like to be one of the disciples that was with Jesus? I mean, everywhere you go, Jesus is doing something spectacular, something miraculous. And again, we go back to Andrew, and we put ourselves in his position. He's starting to try to quantify how can we, how, how can we possibly serve all these people? How can we possibly serve them? We, we just have a little bit to work with, and 20,000 people are starving. They're hungry. Instead of thinking, huh, Jesus is with us. If he wants to feed these people, he can feed them. But no, he begins to think on human terms, which is exactly what we do. How can we fix it? How can we possibly fix the situation? Rather than trusting wholly in who Jesus is and what he can do in any situation, we try to fix it. Cast all your cares upon the Lord because he cares for you. So we've been praying for health needs. We've been praying for other physical needs. Jesus has the power to, to, to heal. He has the power to do whatever he wants to do. And I want to just remind us of the power of prayer this morning. James chapter 5, verses 16 through 18, begins by saying, The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. That's the King James Version. That's the version that I memorized that passage in. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Now, I want us to think theologically here for a moment. We believe in the sovereignty of God, correct? We believe that God is in control of all things, correct? God is in control. He's sovereignly in control of all things, including the salvation of the souls of men and women and children. 
He is 100% in control of all things. He has a sovereign decree that he decreed before the foundation of the world. And yet, somehow, within his sovereign decree, prayer matters. Prayer matters. Well, you might ask, how does it matter? I don't know how it matters. I only know what the Bible says. And the Bible says that Elijah prayed and it did not rain for how long? Three and a half years. And then he prayed again. And what happened? The skies poured forth rain. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Prayer matters in the economy of God. So he is not just sovereign over the end, he's sovereign over the means to the end. And I don't know how to explain it, I don't know how it works in evangelism, because God chose us in him before the foundation of the world, but he uses the gospel to draw them to himself. There's power in the gospel preached. God is amazing. Jesus, who is God, is on a mountain, and these massive crowds of people are gathering around him. It's no sweat. No problem. Have you ever had somebody drop over to your house unexpected and it's around dinner time and you wonder if it's strategic? Five minutes to five, a family of eight pulls up. Hey, what you got going on? Well, come on in. You know how hard it would be to pull something off just to have a meal for just that amount of people? We're talking twenty to 25,000 people here. No problem. No problem. When, when you yourself are struggling with physical issues or relationship issues or financial issues, you can confidently turn to the one who fed 20,000 people with two little fishes and five pieces of barley bread. And not only do we struggle with physical issues, we also struggle big time with spiritual issues. Many of us may not be where we should be spiritually before the Lord. Oh, we're going through the motions. We're trying to figure things out on human terms. We, we're going step by step by step by step, but we're not where we need to be with the Lord. We haven't talked to him since last week. We haven't been in his word. We haven't been reading his word. We haven't been pouring over the scriptures. We're like a distant cousin. Whatever it is that you're dealing with in your life, we can turn to Jesus. And he's the only one who can resolve or make a difference in the issues in our life. And what do we do? It's the last thing we do right? Because we try to fix it. We try to fix it. We may call a friend. Hey, help me fix this. Where should we start? We should start with the Lord. Hey, Lord, this is the situation. You know it well. We're going through struggles physically, whatever it may be. We need your help. Don't sell Jesus short. I think we do it. Lean on him. Turn to him. Rely on him. He is more than able to help you. We like to be self-sufficient. How worldly. We like to be self-sufficient. We like to try and make things better on our own. But when we finally realize that we can't fix certain things on our own, then we're exactly in the position that the Lord wants us. To depend on upon him to wholly rely upon him because only then we turn to the one who can fix whatever it is he's powerful he's on our side he loves us no one can take us out of his hand someone who's powerful enough to feed 20 to 25,000 people on a grassy knoll Who's strong enough to pry the fingers of God back? To pry the fingers of Jesus back? He's got us. And we have that eternal security that we are His children. So what did Paul say 
In Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7, he said, Be anxious for nothing. Be anxious for nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Jesus blew away the expectations of everyone who was on that grassy knoll that day. He even allowed his disciples to participate in the miracle. And perhaps while all this is happening, the crowd was thinking about what the Scriptures say in Psalm 23, verses 1 and 2. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. It's our shepherd. That's our shepherd. We are sheep. And I'm not a farmer, but I've heard sheep aren't the smartest. They need the shepherd. They need all that the shepherd has to offer. We are his sheep. He is our shepherd. And all of this leads us to verse 14 and the third aspect of this miracle that we want to consider today. And it's the reaction. The reaction. Look at verse 14. Therefore, when the people saw the sign which he had performed, and again, we see seven signs in the Gospel of John, they said, this is truly the prophet who has come into this world. This is sad. It's really sad. Sure, the crowd was astonished, but this miracle didn't move the needle in their hearts. They were the consummate party crashers. There to get what they can get, but not give what they could give. Sure, they acknowledged this supernatural, the nature of this miracle that had just happened. They acknowledge here that Jesus must be some sort of a of a prophet because who else can do this so it'd be hard for them to deny that something miraculous happened no they they knew that something miraculous had happened they were a part of it and there was a great buzz in the crowd that they were a part of something miraculous but it didn't move the needle in their hearts this was further evidence of the spiritual blindness of these people. Now, I want you to, to think with me because I've often thought this, and I'm assuming because I've thought it, other people have thought this. I've thought, you know, even as an unbeliever, when I had not yet come to faith, if I saw a miracle like this, I would immediately believe. I would be like, what in the world has just happened here Whoever this is, I, I, I'm putting my full faith and trust in him. And that, I think, is what many of these people were thinking in their own minds. They're thinking, obviously, he's a prophet. He did this, this miracle in, in front of our eyes. But they didn't place their faith and trust in Jesus, in who he was, the Messiah, the the, the one sent by God to come and to do what men could not do on their own. They like the show. I think there's so many people that are going to churches today because they like the show. They don't want to be challenged with God's Word. They don't want to dig into the Scriptures. They just want to feel good about themselves and feel good about where they're at and who they're with. If I preach a feel-good message where we all leave here and we're feeling on cloud nine, I probably didn't do a very good job because the Scriptures are penetrating. So we have this great story, and it's good, isn't it? We all love it. We, we were a part of, uh, many of us were part of Sunday school classes where we had the flannel graph. We learned this story. We know it. <laughs> we know it. These people lived it, and it didn't change their hearts. They just acknowledged that he must be some sort of a prophet. They were a part of the story, but man, oh man, 
nothing. Spiritual blindness. They just witnessed a physical miracle, but Jesus came to the earth to offer a spiritual miracle. To turn sinful hearts of stone into hearts of flesh. To pay the penalty for all who would repent of their sin and turn to Him in faith. To provide eternal life to sinners. Let, let, me, let me just drill down on this for a moment. These people saw the work of Jesus, but they did not believe that He was the Messiah. They weren't looking for Him to be the Messiah, the Christ, the one sent from God. They weren't looking for that. What they wanted is someone to deliver them from the hands and the oppression of the Romans. That's what they were looking for. They weren't looking for a spiritual Messiah. They were looking for a physical Messiah, a king, a warrior, someone that could whip the Romans and lead them into battle and take back what was theirs. Jesus has a physical miracle here, but he came to offer spiritual life. And if you're here today and you have never trusted in Christ as your Savior, you are spiritually dead. The Bible is explicitly clear on this. We were all born dead in our trespasses and sins. Necros, dead, lifeless, no spiritual life. Zero spiritual life only deserving of spiritual death in hell for eternity. One of the things about the Scriptures is we don't have all the blanks filled in. People come to me and they ask me to explain this, and I can only explain what I know and what I've read and what I've studied. I, I, can't, I can't explain every nuance of every little thing because the Bible just requires us to have faith in what, 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 what the Lord says. Oh, we can study and we can dig deep into the Scriptures and we can help people to understand the Scriptures, but God's only given us what He wanted us to know. And, and the older I get, the, 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 I'm good with that. I'm totally fine with us having just exactly what we need. This past weekend... We centered our attention on that subject. As we explored the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, we also talked about the sufficiency of God's Word, that He's given us everything we need for life and godliness. It's all found in the Word of God. Everything we need to know how to live our lives for God, He's given to us. Do we have every answer to every question? Probably not. Probably not. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word of Christ. How will they hear without someone who tells them? And how did we hear about the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ without someone telling us about Jesus? We live in a different era of time. We don't live in the era of the time of Jesus where they could physically walk around and watch him perform miracles. But I've seen it. I've seen him perform miracles. I've witnessed a miracle where he turned my sinful heart of stone into a heart of flesh, spiritually alive. I was spiritually dead in my trespasses and sins. I was on the road to receive exactly what I deserved, which was spiritual death and separation from God. And yet Jesus, in his grace and his mercy, reaches down to a sinner like me, a nobody, some kid They grew up on the north end of Springfield, Illinois. And he does a miracle in my heart. Folks, we I think we've lost what the miracle of the new birth is. We're so used to it. It was forty five years ago, I think, that the Lord opened my eyes to his truth. And if I'm not amazed every single day, shame on me. Shame on me. These people, they were glad to eat. They were glad to have something to chew on. They were glad that their families were provided for with a meal that day. They didn't turn to Christ. They didn't turn to Jesus. They liked it. Oh, I'm sure they all went back and told all their family and friends about what they had witnessed. Just like the people that were at the wedding at Cana, right? Hey, 
we ran out of wine. We totally ran out of wine. And Jesus turns this water into wine. It's the best wine we ever tasted. But did they turn to Jesus in repentance and faith? These people saw it. They were a part of it. But it didn't move the needle. If you know Christ as your Savior, you have experienced a miracle because He has opened your eyes to to His truth. You have been made spiritually alive. And if you have no idea what in the world I'm talking about today, then most likely your eyes have not been opened to the truth of the gospel. Jesus provides eternal life for sinners like us. Like us. As we move our way through the Gospel of John, we're seeing more and more how this is building to the climax. How it's building toward the cross. Jesus has done exactly what he was sent to do. To live a perfect, sinless life. To show the people that he was from God, that he is God, he performs miracles. And they still don't turn to him. Oh, they acknowledge the miracle, but they don't turn to the one who did the miracle. Spiritual blindness. As I said, the people weren't looking for a Savior from sin, but a Savior from the oppression of the Romans. You know what they wanted? And it's like what a lot of people want. They, they want a genie in the bottle. When they need him, they want to rub the, the bottle And he pops out, and they get three wishes. That's what people want. That's what spiritually dead people want. They want what they want, when they want it, and on their own terms. So Jesus can help with physical needs, but these people had no desire to be helped with their spiritual needs. And so many of us are like that today. Just like these people. They want what Jesus has to offer as long as it doesn't cost them anything. Jesus would be very clear about what it meant to truly and genuinely follow him. He never shied away from explaining the cost. You remember in Matthew 16, verses 24 through 26, Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? The world puts all their stock in the temporal. Facilities, buildings, cars, families, you name it. Jobs, success. They put all of their faith and trust in stuff that's going to burn up. It's all going to burn up. All of it is going to burn up. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world for what, 80 years? Live it up, 80 years? 90 years? Gain the whole world? And you trade in your soul? I'd rather be a pauper on the street. I'd rather die early of some horrible disease and be with Jesus than to live it up in this life and have all that I want. The Cadillac Escalade that I always see these people, and they always are in front of me. So I say to Kathy, I'm never going to have a Cadillac Escalade. I'm never going to have a Lincoln Navigator, and I don't really care. Give me Jesus. Give me Jesus. I want you to listen to a song that will help us to drill down and to think about that. In 
when I rise in the morning when I rise in the morning when I Jesus. 